And I want to read uh, actually where I left off this morning. We read the closing verses of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And I want to read the first 12 verses of the second chapter of the Gospel of John. It's a very important passage of Scripture. It really is. There's a lot that hangs upon this first miracle that Jesus did. By the way, I might say to you that sometime if you'd ever like to study in a particular special way the Gospel of John, there are eight miracles in the Gospel of John. Seven of them before the resurrection. Then this one tremendous, great, marvelous miracle that took place after the resurrection at the Sea of Galilee that involved Jesus and seven disciples. So there are eight miracles in the Gospel of John. All of the seven miracles before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus show something that's lacking, lacking in the life of a sinner. Something that a sinner doesn't have. For instance, the impotent man shows that the sinner is helpless. He cannot save himself. And he needs another to save him. Jesus stilling the storm and quieting the waves of the stormy Galilee is a picture of the stormy heart of the man or woman that's lost in sin and how he needs Jesus to speak peace to the stormy waves of his troubled life. And I want to read the first of these seven miracles that take place before the resurrection and as I say, there's one after. And all the truth of the Gospel of John sets forth Jesus as the Son of God hangs upon these eight tremendous miracles. And I want to read the first one tonight. And may the Lord give us an understanding of His blessed Word as we read. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto the unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. It's about a hundred and fifty gallon capacity in these vessels that are involved in this miracle. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, and that does not mean this expression in the Bible, and when men 
have well drunk, it does not mean that they are drunken. It merely means that their thirst has been satiated. It has been, it been fulfilled, has been taken care of. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worst, worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days hence. And I want to lift out of this first miracle Jesus ever performed, and it's not just the first miracle recorded in the Gospel of John, but it's the very first miracle that Jesus ever wrought. The miracle of the turning of the water to wine. If you remember Moses, you know, the Bible says uh, the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And the first miracle that Moses ever wrought was turning the water to blood. Because the law brings death, and that's what that means when the first miracle Moses ever wrought is turning the water to blood. But the first miracle Jesus ever wrought was turning the water to wine. This miracle has been misused by various religions. And when I mention someone's religion, in case there's someone in the audience who is not a Baptist, let me say to you, we mean no personal harm to anyone. We give it to the Baptists harder than we do to anyone else. And there are many Baptists that believe wrongly. And there are perhaps hundreds of thousands of Baptists that have never been born again. So I'm not trying to personalize somebody, someone else's religion. But I'm trying to preach the Bible as best I know how with the help of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to preach what this Bible says. And I wouldn't knowingly for all the world preach anything that this Bible does not teach. But the Mormons teach that this marriage was the marriage of Jesus. And there is no basis for that. There is no question whatsoever but what Jesus practiced celibacy. He was never married, but he did not institute the practice of celibacy. For every man. The Bible says the marriage bed is honorable in all. A double L all. And the Mormons teach that this was the marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ. But such is not the case. People who believe in drunkenness teach. Try to teach that this parable shows that drunkenness is all right. Jesus turned 150 gallons of water into wine, they say. So drunkenness is not condemned in the Bible. And I'll show you God helping me in a minute where that is certainly not true. You know, the Catholics say that priests should never marry, that they are to practice celibacy all their lives. And yet the Catholics make the institution of marriage is marriage 
one of the seven sacraments that the Catholics hold dearly, and thus they're contradictory to their own teaching. But I'm not interested so much tonight in those things as I am in the tremendous truth that I find in this miracle. The man, the groom, uh, uh, the father of the bride, rather, said, Thou hast kept the good wine until now, or thou hast saved the best until the last. And what I want to talk to you about for a little bit tonight is the best is yet to come. And you know, if a Christian here tonight is going through trials, and all Christians do. Now let me say to you, dear friend, I have read the Bible like many of you have. I've read it for 50 years. And let me say to you tonight, this Bible plainly teaches that Christians shall go through trials in their life. Just because you're saved does not mean you'll have no trials in your life. The best Christians who ever lived and those who leap out to us from the pages of this sacred book were some of those who suffered indescribable anguish and suffering in their lifetime. But I, I'm happy tonight to tell you the best is yet to come. In fact, I'm going to go a little further than that and say to all of us tonight who know the Lord, you're having it the worst right now you will ever have in all your life. It's going to get better. The best is yet to come. And that's what the man said when he said, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. He said it's the opposite from the way human beings usually do it. They drank the best wine until everybody's full. It all tastes alike. And then they drink the poor wine last. But this man said, Has he taught a great truth that's in the Bible? Thou hast kept the good wine until now. Now here is a miracle that shows that the sinner has no joy. Wine in the Bible is a symbol of joy. And I'm going to deal a little bit with it in a moment. But I wanted you to know that this miracle shows that the sinner, the person who is not saved, who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior, has no joy as the word joy is defined in the Bible. I'm not going to say that you have no good time. The Bible speaks of the pleasures of sin for a season, but the sinner has no real joy. And this Miracle shows the absence of joy and the supply of joy that the Lord Jesus Christ could get, can give. Now I know the question that comes to a lot of people's mind when you read this miracle of Jesus turning the water to wine. Folks say, well, what kind of wine or what kind of, of liquid was this? Well, first, before I get to that, let me say that the world always, always, the world always offers its best at the first. Take the story of the prodigal. He had the best of the world 
at the first, but at the last, he had the hog pen. The world gives its best at the first, as in the case of the prodigal. The world always gives its worst at the last, as in the case of the rich man who had no barns to hold his grain, and one night counted all of his material wealth, and then heard the clear, distinct voice of God, Thou fool, this night thy soul should be required of thee. But I said, people ask the question when you read this miracle, was this fermented wine? Was this wine when Jesus turned the water to wine? Was it wine that would intoxicate a person? Well, I want to say to you unequivocally, whatever that means, I want to say to you, it was not. You see, this Bible never contradicts itself. You may be saying, preacher, what difference does it make? I've been associated for many, many years with a great group of people in this country in which there are 5,000 churches in the organization. Recently, some couple of three years ago, they got into a big discussion on whether or not wine used at the communion table was fermented intoxicating wine or whether it wasn't. And it split down the middle. They started another school. You may not think it's important, but it's certainly important to 5,000 churches. They had a big split over it. And I want to say to you tonight, there's not one shadow of evidence, there's not one bit of proof that wine in this first miracle of Jesus was an intoxicating substance. If it were, it would contradict other verses in the Bible. And there are no contradictions in the Bible. God cannot contradict himself. God never speaks out of both sides of his mouth. God never issues a statement and then takes it back. And the Bible says, Look not upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth its color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Now listen to this. For at the last, at the last, it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. Amen. Do you think that the Lord Jesus Christ would make a hundred and fifty gallons of a substance that bites like a serpent and stings like an adder and ruins the lives of men. Listen to the word of God. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5, 18. Listen to what God says. When a man is to be a deacon, it, is, it says a man not given to much wine. The Bible plainly speaks against alcoholism and intoxication. And you know, dear friends, there are many places in the Bible. And um, if I had the time to mention them tonight. But you know, there's a word, the Greek word oinus. And that's the word usually 
used for wine in the New Testament. That, that word is a generic term. It could mean intoxicated wine, and it could not mean intoxicated wine. It depends on the instance in which it was used. You read of wine-bursting bottles or wineskins. That's because of fermentation. But there's no place in the Bible where God ever puts his approval on alcoholism. God does not approve that. There's another word. It's a word maybe you've used this day. It comes from the Greek word glucose. That's where we get our word glucose. And that means a sweetness. And that's a sweet wine. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 25, when our Lord had finished the institution of the table of the Lord and walked out singing a hymn toward the Mount of Olives, he said, I will eat with you no more till I drink with you the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the vine, the sweet wine in the kingdom to come. So there's no question whatsoever but what this was an unfermented substance involved in this miracle. But notice the man, the great host of the wedding said, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. And I want to just translate that in three or four areas, areas of our lives tonight. Thou save the best to the last. Now, you know, that's in, in, in a sense is true even of salvation. I get to thinking sometimes about how little I knew when I was saved. Now, you have to know a little something. And you, you don't have to be smart, but you have to know that you're saved by faith and that Jesus is the Son of God. And you have to know that you must believe on Him in order to be saved. But isn't it surprising how little you know when you're saved? If someone had said to me, are you a premillennialist or amillennialist? I think I would have run off and hid behind a tree somewhere. I wouldn't have known what they were talking about. If someone had said to me, explain to me, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification and so forth. Why, I would have had no idea what in this world they were talking about. I'm just saying it's amazing how little we know when we step out of darkness into light. When we're born again and washed in the blood and made a new creature in Christ Jesus and adopted into the family of God. You don't have to know a little bit. But you know, there's a verse I want you to think about with me. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, and he'd no more gotten started with his letter till he used this statement in verse 6 of chapter 1, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of redemption. Now notice something. He which hath begun, that's a commencing. 
He which has begun a good work in you. Are you sure? Are you sure tonight that God has begun a good work in you? I'm talking about the new birth, being born again. I'm talking about being made a new creature in Christ Jesus. The Christian life starts with an experience called being born the second time. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of redemption. So you have the commencing and will perform it. You have the continuing until the day of Jesus Christ, it says. That's when the Lord comes and you have a new body. Now watch something. There's the commencing. That's when you start, when you're born again. There is the continuing and there is the consummation. Now where are you tonight? You and I, every Christian in this room, are right in the middle. We're not at the starting place. We've been born again, but we're in the continuing place tonight. And the continuing means there's a mediator at the throne. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. And at the throne in heaven tonight, there is one who is supervising our growth in grace and our growth in knowledge and our growth in maturity. We are in the continuing stage tonight. But oh, happy day. One day the trumpet will blow and there will be the shout of the archangel and the consummation will take place. Then I want to hear somebody say, when I got saved, I got saved all over. Because then it will be true. Because you'll have a new body when the Lord comes. You see, you're saved tonight. But oh, how much more there is yet to come. Why, when I was just saved, I knew my sins were forgiven. My life was changed. But I didn't know I was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I had no knowledge of His friendship. No knowledge of His wonderful ability to comfort the broken heart, to dry the weeping eye. No knowledge of His ability to give strength in a moment of weakness. You see, I got saved 50 years ago, but he saved the best wine until the last. And it gets better all the time. It just gets better all the time. You know, there was a fellow couldn't say sweet. He had an impediment of speech. And I do too. I talk southern. And he had an impediment of speech. And he couldn't say sweet. He said tweet. And he said this gets tweeter and tweeter all the time. And I think that's what my text is trying to say. Thou hast saved the good wine until now. It's getting better all the time. Now it's not only true of being saved. You know that's true of the Bible. Now the Bible's never changed. But when, when you got saved, just think about 
how little you knew about the Bible. Why, I, I love the Bible. I've often testified to you three days before I became a Christian on the 14th day of August 1935. I used to didn't know the day. I knew it was uh, Wednesday of the second week of August. I knew that much about it in 1935, but I used to didn't know the date. They never had a meeting in the little country church except the second week of August. God wouldn't bless any other week. You have one the first week or third week, God wouldn't pay any attention to you. Had it the second week of August every year, year after year, year after year. But one day a man in this church found, took a calendar that went all the way back to the year 1935 and found that Wednesday was August the 14th, 1935 at 12 o'clock noon in a little unpainted country Methodist church I came to know the Lord, but I'd already read the New Testament through and through three days before I got saved. And when I got saved that day, I turned around and in the next three days, long toward till Saturday or Sunday, I read the New Testament through all the way through again. So I read the New Testament through in twice in the same week that I was saved. But how little... I knew about the Bible. But here's a wonderful thing about it. You know, the Bible said, Thy word is a lamp under my feet and a light under my path. And you see, as I walked with the Lord, this is true of any of you, young or old, walking with the Lord. As I walked with the Lord, He's kept the light of the Holy Bible shining on my pathway. And I want to tell you, friend, every step of a good man is ordered of the Lord. And every step of a Christian is on a lighted path. And that path is lit by this blessed Word of God. You know, when one is first saved, I didn't know Jesus was the theme of the whole Bible. I was more interested in the red letter edition of the Bible than nearly anything. You know what I mean? The words of Jesus in red. And I just thought, oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. I didn't know that Jesus was the theme of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 until the last amen and word of grace at the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus is the theme of the Bible. He's the theme of the whole word of God. Every page, every book, Every chapter, every verse, every word is about Jesus Christ. He is the theme of the book. You say, preacher, how do you know he said so? That's how I know. He said, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. How do you know he said so? In Hebrews he said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me, for I came to do thy will, O God. And Jesus is the theme of this Bible. That's why I've always said, and nobody, no one can believe the Bible to be the written word of God, absolutely perfect and pure, without error or contradiction, without believing that Jesus, the living word, is perfect and without error. 
and the spotless, sinless Son of God, virgin born. And in a sense, no one else is the Son of God. If you believe one, you have to believe the other. Well, you know, when I got saved, I never realized the Bible's all one story. But it is. It's all one story. Never will forget when I came to the first ten chapters of First Chronicles. Why well, I thought that the typesetter had gone crazy. I saw all those names. And I said, I've never seen so many misprints in my life. No, no one could have been named like these people were. But then, as I read the Bible and grew in the Lord a little bit and, and learned a little more about the Bible, I just read those names now. And, you know, I get happy when I read all those hundreds of names that you can't even pronounce. You know why? I just get to thinking, God knows everybody's name. And He knows how to spell it. And He's got it in His book. And He knows what He's doing. And He's got His book of who's who in heaven. And it's right here. But I didn't know that when I got saved. That it was all just one wonderful story. But oh, thank God for the Bible. You know, the, the longer you live, you see the Lord has kept the good wine until now. And the more you read the Bible, the more you're going to realize what a wonderful book it is. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto under the word of God. So the Bible keeps me clean. The Bible keeps me from sin. Thy word, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. This Bible is filled with wondrous things. Open thou mine eyes, the psalmist prayed, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Thank God tonight for the Bible. Someone wrote, how sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Psalm 119, 103, David wrote it. Now think of it. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey are they unto my mouth. Listen to Job talking about the Bible. Job said, I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Think what he's saying. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Well, I've had the experience, and maybe you have too, of sometimes just get so wrapped up in the Bible, never think about lunch, never think about eating. Joe, that's what Job's saying. I've esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Someone's written this little poem Thou truest, truest friend man ever knew. Thou constancy I have tried. When all were false, I found thee true, my counselor and my guide. The minds of earth no treasures give that can this volume buy. In teaching me the way to live, it teaches me the way to die. So in the Bible and your relation to it, God has saved the best until now, and it gets better all the time. Now, you know, this is true 
of our salvation, as I've already said. It's true winning souls to Christ. I remember the first soul I ever won. You have to win your first one before you ever can be a soul winner. I remember the first soul I ever won. And I'll tell you about it just now. But you know, it's true of winning souls to Christ. You know, it just grows and grows and grows. I love to think of Andrew. I have prepared a sermon in, uh, for publication on Andrew and all of the disciples. But you know, the Bible just plainly and simply says in John chapter 1, verse 41 and 42, it says, And Andrew first findeth his own brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. That's how simple it was. He didn't complicate it. He didn't say, well, what if he's a Catholic? He didn't say that. He, said, what if, he didn't say, what if he's a Jehovah's Witness? What if he's a Mormon? What if he believes in works? He didn't say that. He, it just says he first findeth his own brother and he brought him to Jesus. And you know, Andrew, you don't find many words in the Bible that Andrew ever spoke. He didn't say much. But Peter said an awful lot. Peter testified about Christ. One day Jesus said, Who do men say, I the Son of Man am? Andrew didn't say anything. But Peter did. Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And old Andrew might, might have said, That's my brother. And on the day when Peter walked on the water, Andrew never walked on any water. But Peter walked on the water. And when Peter walked on the water, I can imagine old Andrew said, That's my brother. And one day, the greatest day in all the history of the church, that day when the church was born, when Peter preached, 3,000 souls were saved followed the Lord in believers water baptism that day and the greatest day in all the history of the church and the preacher who preached was Peter Andrew didn't say a word but he might have said that's my brother and one day when God said now Peter these people you call unclean the Gentiles I want the Gentiles saved you see what I'm talking about? God said salvation is to the Jew first, then also to the Greek. And Peter, it's time to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. Peter said, I've never eaten anything unclean. God let down this big sheet full of all kinds of unclean beasts uh, uh, to this Jew. And this Jew said, "Why, God, Father, Lord, I've never eaten any of this unclean meat. And God said, slay, kill, and eat. And he said, I'm trying to show you that I want you to go to the house of a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. He had a hundred soldiers, maybe a hundred families, and maybe a lot more. There were hundreds of people. And Peter preached, and Gentiles, for the first time in an official way, were saved and baptized by the score. You say, how do you know they were baptized? Because Peter said, uh, Can any man hinder water that these be baptized 
who have believed in the Holy Ghost the same as we. Andrew didn't say anything unless he might have said, that's my brother. I tell you, there's nothing like winning somebody to the Lord. One day they sent for Peter to come to the home of Dorcas. Dorcas had died. And the ladies were crying, her friends and neighbors, and they were picking up garments and things she'd made and said, oh, look at this beautiful cloak she made me and had her laid out and they'd look at her and they loved her. And one said, look at this lovely dress that Dorcas made. And Peter took her by the hand and said, Talithi kumai. See, I'm speaking in tongues now. He took her by the hand and said, Arise from the dead. And Dorcas arose, and their hearts were thrilled. And Andrew didn't say a word unless he said, That's my brother. And one day, Jesus, one day, Peter was going to die as a martyr. I don't know whether this be true or not. You know, a lot of the Catholics and Protestants have argued for years about whether Peter ever went to Rome. We know Paul did. And uh, in the Mamertine prison, there is an iron uh, thing in the wall, has, a, has a, an image of Peter and of Paul, and says they were both in prison at the same time. That's very doubtful, because when Paul wrote uh, his letter uh, to the church at Rome, he never mentioned Peter. Peter wasn't there then. When he wrote four letters from Rome, he made no reference to him in those letters, which were prison epistles in four letters. He made no mention of him. But all, all of the honest tradition says that Peter didn't go to Rome. And it is believed that Peter became a martyr for the Lord. Maybe at Rome, the Bible doesn't say, but tradition says that one day... Peter was walking out to the edge of the city, of the imperial city, and he met in a vision, and the Bible was not completed then. He met in a vision, tradition says, a picture, an image of some kind, and he vaguely saw the Lord. And the Lord spoke to him, and Peter said, Jesus, what are you doing here? And he said, I'm here to be crucified again in you. And soon the words of Jesus in John 21 were fulfilled. When thou art old, another shall bind thee and lead thee whither thou wouldest not go. This spake he signifying by what death Peter would die. And so they come to take him somewhere, sometime, to lead him to martyrdom. And tradition says... They said, we're going to crucify you like we crucified your Lord. And tradition says, Peter said, oh no, I'm willing to die anyway. But I'm so unworthy to die like he did. He died with his head pointed upwards. Crucify me upside down. And tradition says, they nailed him to a cross with the blood running from his mouth and face and body as he died a martyr's death. Andrew doesn't say anything about it, but out there somewhere, maybe he said, that's my brother. And I want to tell you, friend, when you get some soul 
out of darkness into light, you'll never know what a great spiritual world you've created. I think of men that have walked these aisles that are preaching the word of God in many different states in the United States of America tonight. Some of them were drunkards and some of them were gamblers and one was a confirmed alcoholic but now they're preachers of the word of God. You see, soul winning gets better all the time. Why don't we do it more? That's the amazing thing. We know how wonderful it is, how thrilling it is. And it's true of soul winning. The further you go, the better it gets. You know, I think it's true of heaven. Thou hast saved the best unto the last. I used to read the Bible. I'm preaching kind of funny tonight. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it's the Super Bowl's day and I still can't figure out why I'm not interested. But uh, I remember I used to read about heaven. I wanted to go there because it's so beautiful. And I'd read about its beauty, streets of gold. And I'd picture myself. I never had any gold. I never had any silver. I never had any bronze. I, all I had was iron. And it's made in the shape of a plow point. And when I got saved and read about heaven, and I'd make out like I was walking on streets of gold, and I'd just imagine it, and gates of pearl, and walls of jasper, and I'd think of little old country Tom, saved in overalls and tennis shoes, poor as Job's turkey. You know how poor that is? That's a turkey that's so poor that he gets ready to gobble. He has to lean up against the barn. He doesn't have strength to gobble. And I used to read about heaven, and I wanted to go there because it was so beautiful. Then as life moved along, precious people blood came to me, passed from the earthly scene, and I went so many times to the open grave. I'd think so much about, I want to go there, because they are there. But you know tonight, if you'd ask me why you'd like to go to heaven, I'd say because He is there. And one glorious day in the land of no tears nor pain, the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray you bless thy sweet word to our hearts. We don't feel we've handled it well, but Lord, I've enjoyed the glorious truth that the best is yet to come. And I pray you bless it to the hearts of these dear people. There be one here tonight that's not saved. Oh, may they be saved tonight. And if there's one here tonight who needs to make some great decision of self-surrender and dedication and put everything on the altar and mean it. May they do it tonight. And my Father in heaven, if there are those tonight need to be baptized to join this church family, may thy Holy Spirit move upon them in a wonderful way that they may come in these next few moments.